Pharma Ventures, the deal experts. Hello and welcome to this edition of Pharma Ventures podcast. New medicines are being developed and invented every day. Particular areas such as cell and gene therapy and precision medicine are becoming increasingly important. But it's not just the R&D community that's, that's developing. Manufacturers have to develop also and have to keep pace. So how are pharmaceutical companies and CDMOs doing this? Joining me today are Pharma Ventures colleagues Jansen Jacob and Steve Garland. Jansen, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Jansen Jacob. Uh, I'm a VP at Pharma Ventures, uh, a scientist by training, and I spent the first 10 years doing research, first in academia and then in industry, before joining Pharma Ventures. And over the last 10 years or so, I've been involved in most of the projects related to pharma services, R&D and manufacturing assets, and supporting companies in, in the buying or selling of such assets. Thanks, Jansen. Steve? I'm Steve Garland, a microbiologist by education and have worked uh, in the biologic sector for more than 35 years. Started life working on animal vaccines and then moved into monoclonal, small and large scale development and uh, production before getting into recombinant proteins. I've been involved in tech transfers uh, with, within the UK and from uh, outside of the UK, and also facility bills and a lot of discussions with regulatory authorities. So in, in your intro there, Steve, you, you um, said something about scale, and I guess that's the typical view of manufacturing. It, it's about taking something that might be done at quite relatively small scale and industrialising that so you can make gallons of it or kilograms of it uh, reproducibly and then ship it around the world. And is that still the process? Have you seen, have you seen changes? Uh, very definitely. It is still the process. However, what it, there have been significant changes over the years. Uh, initially, when I joined the, the industry, what happened was research was independent in many ways. The thinking of the research would, and even the early stage development was independent of actually what the end product was going to be uh, related to scale cost and whether the process was actually achievable at the scale that was needed for the commercial uh, or the end product uh, to the point where quite often processes were put together with raw materials that either weren't available in sufficient quantities or the cost was going to be prohibitive to make the uh, end product uh, a realistic uh, drug product in the uh, in the industry. So the companies now now really approach this in an end-to-end like manner that even from the early days of R&D they're they're not thinking about is this a is this a great cure and we'll figure out how to make it later and those clever guys will come up with a process and be able to do it it's actually no, we need to understand how to do that right now from the get-go. Uh, very definitely. Uh, but what what happens, or what has and uh, I've seen over the over the years, is there is a commercial input right at the very early stage of process development or even the research side of actually saying what is the end product, where is the the customer, is the customer is it an individual patient, is it. Uh, a vaccine that's going to be used worldwide, and therefore, what are the quantities? How should it be uh, made? And therefore, brought it all the way back down to early stage development, uh, and from there, so that so that there is a focus right the way through. Right, I can imagine that's that's more of an issue when you're dealing with biologics, as you spend a lot of your time in the industry. But what what about small molecules? Is, is it the same for them? Because that, isn't that just chemistry? It is, but then. You often find that you may not, the pharma company who's developing the drug may not have all the skills necessary to take it from R&D development scale to commercial. And often they, you know, if they don't have a skill in, in-house, they 
get contract manufacturers to help. But then more often than not, they use specialist services for each of those segments, somebody to, to help with the formulation and early R&D, somebody to help with clinical manufacturing, and somebody else with the commercial capability to do the commercial manufacturing. But there's more and more interest now in trying to streamline this so that there aren't these gaps and blocks between these uh, different groups and the tech transfer required from transferring from R&D to clinical scale or to commercial. So there is this drive to streamline all of this and and CMOs, CDMOs with uh, capabilities to, to provide all of these are more in demand because it's less hassle for the pharma company because they are d- dealing with just one party instead of three or four uh, in the uh, development of that particular drug, right? So, are you saying in in the old olden days? I say olden days; it's not that far ago. Um, uh, that that pharma would would either do it themselves internally, or if they didn't have that, they'd go to this whole different mishmash of companies that could provide bits and pieces of the of the of the chain and stitch it together effectively, which, again, sounds very cumbersome. Isn't this just a natural progression that the external companies would recognise this and go, there's an opportunity here. Um, if I offer more of a one-stop shop for them, maybe with time they, they end up growing and growing, that they're, they're going to be able to do more business? Is, it, is that what happened? The, the answer is yes, uh, in particular because, I mean, listening to Jansen there, then speed to the marketplace is important, cost all the time you add on another organisation that is carrying out whatever aspect of the uh, of the process, whether if you take it right to the end product of fill finish, then it adds cost, it adds time for the tech transfer. The more you can do in one uh, unit or one, one organisation, the better. The downside is uh, the earlier you get in to the um, thinking that you've, you've demonstrated something in a process in research, then to start scaling it, it can take a lot longer than uh, and it's and cost more, and it's not necessarily a plug and play into the systems that CDMOs typically have. CDMOs try to, uh, or my experience of CDMOs is that you try to have a one one solution fits all and it doesn't there has to be certain times and aspects of additional development that goes on there before it can transfer into the uh, final scale or in into a scale to, to demonstrate proof of concept preclinical clinical material whatever right right so there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation here i think which which is um CDMOs, these contract agencies, do what pharma wants, so they they all try and do one size fits all, I think you said. So in in striving for that as a CDMO, because you want pharma's business, because pharma presumably doesn't want to do it itself because it's too costly, um, aren't they forcing themselves down a down a route which which is ultimately incompatible with the way medicine is practiced? We'll come to it later, but it, again, but it, we're we're entering the 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 realm of personalised medicine, and we'll come back to personalised medicine because it has massive implications for manufacturing. But where we are now, you're just saying they're trying to do a, a one-size-fits-all. Pharma loves one-size-fits-all but can't do it now because that's not what the people want. So there's, there's, is there a tension there or is there not? But there's a number of suppliers that are now uh, 
have recognised that working with uh, CDMOs, working with companies to develop basically small-scale, disp- single-use disposable systems to uh, a, a size. You mentioned personalised medicines. Uh, absolutely. The more that you can do, because their, their speed is important, scale is important, single-use contained systems are important, uh, and that because of, the, because of the scalability of a number, it may not be ideal and perfect for uh, some of the um, process optimization, but it delivers the product at the end and is scalable. So I believe it isn't the, the, the companies are now getting to the point where, yes, we can do that, and it's not one size fits all. Right, so what you've described there is a thing where, where develop a process at, at a given scale, but then you can just magnify it by just repeating it again and again yeah rather than rather than necessarily going going outwards you can scale uh with larger larger volumes right and, the, and it, 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 it to, a, to a finite amount which then you go but then you change to multi again that, that that seems to have a biologics type flavor to it is, is again let, let's let's ask the is it the same for, for small molecules yeah. so although cdmos would like to be a one-stop shop it's very un- unlikely that they will be able to solve everyone's problems. So from that point of view, these niche suppliers would always be in demand. Now, you could argue that some of these uh, CDMOs are trying to acquire those capabilities in- and bring it in-house, which is good. But I think there is a limit to what one company can do to service all of pharma's uh, needs. Whoever gets to the market first has an advantage. And how can you make that happen? And that is what companies are now looking for. How much speed is and how much efficiency is there in the manufacturing process? Because I would think that more of the more of the delays or more of the things that take longer are in the the D phase when you're going through your clinical trials. Um, so isn't isn't there plenty of time? You must have done some manufacturing by that point to get to get clinical trial batches. So where are we saving <laughs> by doing this? Who's benefiting? I think it, I think there's again there's a variety of of products we're looking at here. If you're looking at cell therapy, personalised medicine, then there is a finite time from uh, patient back to patient, and that is because of the health requirement. You know of the, because the quicker you can get it back to the patient, the better it is. With the other products, um, then to improve uh, the efficiency of manufacturing uh, at whatever scale, it's to get more output from the same square meterage, uh, and hence research can do a lot. Can you grow an organism at a slightly different temperature? What other uh, nutrients, fed batch, things like that. But it's, these are getting much more subtle now. And with the uh, introduction of, of AI, where you can actually run a number of parameters and see is it likely to work, then ch- check it at small scale uh, and then run it. It basically, at the larger manufacturing scale, it's output per square meterage of the facility, square per litre of, of broth, whatever it happens to be, if it's a fermentation, mm-hmm. uh, to reduce cost and get the, get the output from a facility. So you can run smaller, a smaller footprint or smaller fermenter, reduce risk and get product out quicker. Right. So, so the, the, the speed to market thing, I'm just going to make sure we're not talking at cross purposes. So I come from an R&D background. So, so my speed to market is all about getting a, getting a drug on the market because you've got a finite pattern life. 
your speed to market is slightly different from that? Slightly different. There's, these days, there's an awful lot of products out there that, because of the cost of maintaining patents, small biotech companies are not having such a patent portfolio as we would have in the in the past. A lot less working on know-how and uh, basically being there uh, and and having the, uh, say, the know-how rather than uh, patent it and patent later because there's number of restrictions uh, in the process. The processes, a lot of the biologics processes, fermentation, purification, and most of it has either been uh, protected by IP, by various uh, organisations, or uh, it's so limited as what you can do, then hard to go out and get a completely new process. How, how important is IP in, in manufacturing? I mean, it, it's it's not something... Typically, you associate the IP with the invention of the new drug, whatever, whether it's an antibody right, or, yes. or a small molecule. How, how much is, is it involved in manufacturing? Is it just industrialising or is it know-how? I think uh, IP does play a big part, but it's a good point that you've made, uh, Steve. I think there is um, especially the need to defend your patents across the globe and, and the costs involved in that, yep. there is an argument to be made that maybe it's not w- worthwhile uh, going that route and maybe using what many of the IT companies are using in, in terms of not patenting stuff but having know-how yep. because the developments are taking place so fast that it's difficult to keep up with all of your patent portfolio and the costs that would be required to to, to keep hold of it. I absolutely, absolutely agree. And, and that's from experience that know-how is more important in many ways than you know, and the IP come, can come along later. At Farm Avengers here, we, we're involved in transactions. It's, it's, it's what we do. We, we trade things. And Jansen, you said in your intro that you've been involved in, in numerous deals, trading R&D and manufacturing assets. What are we actually selling there? Are we selling a, a big building with shiny metal things in it and, and lots of lots of pipes or are we selling IP? Uh, definitely big buildings and stainless steel would be nice but more than that it is actually the talent that goes behind operating those machines. That is what buyers are more interested in really because these days uh, especially with newer technologies and uh, really uh, that comes to a forefront when it comes to biologics and cell and gene therapy because the talent uh, there the exp- expertise to uh, to take a new novel product and take it to co- to make it to commercial manufacturing that's a skill set which is in short supply and those who have that are in greater demand and it's those kind of uh, assets with with the talented technical people behind it that's what's attractive when it comes to uh, buying or selling a, a manufacturing or R&D facility. Right, so it sounds like skills and know-how and, and whether the, whether it's it's unknown know-how, if you like, to the, to the competition or it's known know-how and the ability to exploit it better than other people is what makes it attractive. That's, that's the key piece, better than other people. Right. And, and does it work as, as, a, as a complete functional unit? You know, with you mentioned about the shiny stainless and things like that these days that's a lot less important right you know for for the 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 way the development or the biologics industry is developing okay so uh, that's less important yes there's a high cost with uh, uh with equipment but a lot of it is doesn't have the same lead times uh and development times and commissioning etc uh, as it used to with the stainless type right and cost can also be brought down with more automation, and especially in small molecules case, 
the move towards more continuous manufacturing instead of batch manufacturing is, is quite popular now. Uh, and people are trying to make more continuous manufacturing operations, which eliminates uh, the need for more headcount. You're automating more things, so uh, less prone to errors. And which also means that uh, costs, the effective overall cost of manufacturing, in theory, should be also coming down with these cont- continuous manufacturing processes. Right. And as, as the industry in which we all participate is uh, one where there is there are sadly huge amounts of failure, 90% of drugs never make it, and, and somebody has to pay for it. Every dollar saved in a manufacturing process is a dollar that could be spent elsewhere or just spent on R&D or something for better drugs, I guess. Is that, that fair? Yes, I think I think that is I think that is fair. I think uh, what I'd like to say is just reiterating and just taking Janssen's com- point further. Uh, most certainly these days, automation plays a huge part in the analytics side mm-hmm. um, of being able to automate assays, which you can then just run twenty four seven, as opposed to and doesn't need to be manned all that time or anything. So that there's savings, both time, cost there, and generation of data now is far greater and and detailed data than ever it was, which then feeds back into research. You you talked about data. Data is is a a monetizable asset these days, and particularly with companies like Google and Amazon and others, they're all about data and who owns the data is is, is key, and and therefore that's the entity that can monetize it. And, And data is becoming more important when um, things like AI and machine learning are applied to it. Is there a role for that in manufacturing or is... is... Very definitely. Okay. Yeah, very definitely. I think it's early days uh, and I'm sure uh, other people will say, whoa, no, it's not early days. Um, From my perspective, I think it is, uh, and my experience, it's still early days. But absolutely, we can learn an awful lot from other industries which will reduce some of the development, uh, back to saying development time, but the development activities. So you can actually predict the results out of uh, uh, out of experiments, and then only follow those or the ones around that mean uh, to see actually, yep, that's working. Or if it doesn't, then go back and relook at the data. But absolutely, AI is uh, going to play an important part in manufacturing in time. You're listening to the PharmaVentures podcast, where we're talking about innovation and evolution in pharmaceutical manufacturing with Janssen Jacob and Steve Garland of PharmaVentures. Just just while we were, we were talking transactional entities a little bit there, um, just uh, who's buying and who's selling, Janssen? I mean, it, do you, you're, that's the space you're involved in. Uh, are there particular groups or is it everybody buying and selling? Is what, what, What's, the, what's the, the landscape look like? Maybe not as many big CDMOs as there are big pharmas, but still there is a trend. I mean, I was just looking at biologic CDMOs for, uh, as an example, and um, there are over a thousand CDMOs with biologics capability, and less than two-thirds of them are under 50 million in revenue. So it's a very fragmented space, so there's plenty of potential to, to scale up, uh, to, uh, to increase capacity and consolidate. And and that is, uh, we see that happening. I mean, uh, recently we saw Farm doing a multiple, many deals, both buying and selling, actually. They're selling one of their uh, facilities in, in, in uh, north of England uh, earlier this year. Uh, but again, everyone's looking at what they currently have, 
and how to optimize it. And even though you may be acquiring another uh, company, as I mentioned, Recifarm, I mean, they sold one of the ASICA plants uh, mm-hmm. uh, earlier this year. But why did they do that? Because they're looking at maximizing their portfolio and what their capability. And of course, their focus is now increasingly in cell and gene therapy and biologics. So it makes sense to to bring down some of their small molecule operations, which are not as productive or, or revenue generating as uh, some of the other parts of their business. And they should have better access to raw materials and capabilities nearer to the market. So from that point of view, uh, I would see more uh, uh, regional operations by the major players, which means there's going to be more acquisitions in, in those territories. I mentioned Asian companies having looking at European and U.S. footholds. Uh, of course, with the U.S. market being the most uh, attractive, everyone's trying to get uh, a, a foothold in, in the U.S., um, and d- during COVID times, especially when, when the US was talking about bringing all manufacturing in-house, there was a big scramble towards finding appropriate uh, uh, facilities in the US. Having said that, talent is key also. So uh, it's not just uh, enough to have a, a good facility, but we need to have the expertise to man those facilities. But it's still uh, very, very active uh, and um Consolidation will continue. P firms, new entrants are coming into the into play. Uh, um, there has been a lot of fundraising in, in the past, uh, and a lot of funds are still not being uh, used up in acquiring facilities or businesses. So there's a lot of dry powder there yet to be deployed, and I think those could be deployed to to. Uh, consolidate more of these operations, CDMO operations. But you see, you you seem to sort of um, center around private equity-backed CDMOs buying other CDMOs and non-private entities buying non-private entities. Um, but you didn't talk much about pharma buying or selling. Does does pharma not make anything anymore? You may have a facility with all the expertise in house, a factory. Uh, which can do all of these things, but it might be running at 20% capacity, which is not very good use of your fixed assets. So from that point of view, it would make better sense if the manufacturing was, was done by a CDMO uh, player where his uh, or their facility is run at 80% or 90% utilization, which which is better use of resources, especially when we talk... I mean, every country is trying to bring down the cost of their medicines, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, if you can reduce the cost of manufacture... Great. So, uh, and energy is getting more expensive. Cost of manufacturing, the costs are increasing for manufacturing. So, I think pharma companies will will struggle to to meet the competitiveness that the CDMO players uh, offer. Right. Is that is that how much value can you extract from per square meter of meter of facility? And if you do lots absolutely. with it, it's better. Uh, um, absolutely. I mean, that's that's exactly where it goes. The problem is. Are there sufficient CDMOs of the right scale or with the right equipment? There's a number of CDMOs, but once again, it's not necessarily plug and play. And then they don't have specific uh, or equipment which will re- meet specific clients' requirements sitting there waiting. That's where it has to be a plug and play. So... Um, I agree with you. There's a lot of CDMOs out there. I agree there's a lot of consolidation. And it does seem to be that a number of organisations feel that uh, there's investment to be made and money to be made by buying 
or acquiring uh, some of the smaller CDMOs. However, those CDMOs have a way of working. They have a finite capacity, as you've just said, Janssen, that, uh, that operating at 80% or whatever, then is it then a build-out once they've been acquired or do you acquire a number, a number of organisations and then try and consolidate and get them all operating in the same way? There's a cost, a time, and again... Uh, People at the moment, following COVID, staff, uh, highly qualified staff, are or do seem to be very much more mobile than they were prior to that. And people are moving around, most certainly within the UK. And uh, in reality, my experience is in Europe as well. They're moving moving between companies. Um, so it's difficult to hang on in some ways to uh, staff. Right. You, um, you, you, you mentioned one of the... the perennial elephants in in rooms uh, covid there um and um here in the uk it, it's it's frequently trumpeted what a great job we did getting vaccine rollouts and and uh getting um people vaccinated against covid uh better quicker fast than anybody else but to do it they had to make them um and it was rapid compared to the uh, what one some might think are sort of the glacial speeds that that uh, thing pharma develops drugs at so how how did that happen how did we do that if if you know we got we got a, a drugs from research to in vials and in patients in in incredibly quick time how, how was that possible i think everybody pulled together and when i say everybody it was um researchers which and this is different companies researchers um suppliers of equipment and CDMOs uh, who, whilst they didn't have capacity sitting there idle, uh, were in a better position maybe to uh, take those early stage processes and scale them up quickly, working with equipment suppliers. And there's some excellent uh, collaborations that went on during that time. And I was involved in, in some of that and the company I worked for was heavily involved in that. And also interaction with the regulators and basically keeping regulators, uh, well, everybody informed and working as a multidiscipline team, which had never been seen before because every company wants to do their own thing. Whereas uh, in this situation, everybody realised with a pandemic uh, just how critical it was to get product to the marketplace uh, or to the, to the, client, uh, to the um, patient as quickly as possible. And so a lot, although no, nothing was shortcut, what was able to be done was done in an incredibly efficient way. And I think, well, I don't only really think, I know it has now made everyone realise that uh, it can be done that way in future. Um, but I think after, after the uh, vaccine had been manufactured, COVID-19 vaccines had been, first batches had been manufactured, deep breath by everybody to then focus on uh, trying to optimise efficiencies, etc., and go from there. But it has taught everyone, including the regulators, that there are quicker ways of doing things than we've done in the past. All right, so the, the obvious next question is, is this a model for the future? Should we expect yes, the world to behave so. like this? I don't think it's going to happen. It's not going to happen as quickly as that, but I really do feel that following on from uh, the COVID-19 experience, most certainly uh, cell therapy uh 
is going to take a very similar approach. And I think regulators are going to look at contained single use or contained processes, single use equipment, um, uh, distribution systems and all the rest of it to be able to get from patient back to patient in a very quick, very controlled and very regulated way. And I think, uh, you know, in my discussions uh, with regulators, I think they they realise that there's a very different way of doing things, even to the point of stepping out of that part, but um, um, auditing or inspecting facilities that if... People are changing, modifying, building facilities, then have interaction with the regulators at the very beginning with the innovation groups within the regulatory uh, bodies and keep them informed all the way through. So when it comes round to um, getting approval of a facility for product manufacture, then there are no surprises for the regulators all the boxes have been ticked as they've gone through. You can supply material, uh, information data to the regulators in packet form as you go through. So actually the final inspection, uh, physical inspection of a facility uh, is far more of a short process box ticking uh, because it's just proof of actually what you said you've done, you've done and you can demonstrate it. So I do think uh, for all the downsides of, of obviously, uh, of, of COVID, the uh, industry has learnt a huge amount from it uh, and hopefully it will put a lot of it into practice moving forward. But uh, I don't know if the regulators are manned sufficiently to, to handle this because with, with COVID, everything else stopped and they could focus on just COVID-related stuff so they could fast-track and do everything. But with everything else going back to normal, do the regulators have the capability to, to fast track? Point. I don't believe they have. I'm not convinced they had the uh, um, capability prior to COVID, but as you said, dropped everything else, focused on COVID, and uh, in reality, that took a forefront. Following from there, yeah, I think you're absolutely right uh, that uh, it's it needs the uh, resource to be able to... Uh, do that. So we just move the bottleneck somewhere else. Is that that what you're saying? <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that's yeah. That's, that's the summary of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. okay because if you know yeah. what the problem is, then the means to address it is investment and training and everything else that that releases bottlenecks. But, but I think, but I think as well, uh, just reiterating what I said, the more that the uh, industry and the individual company can do in providing uh, clear information at the right stages to the regulators, it makes their role very much easier. Right. So um, hanging on to the tail of the COVID elephant, we've mentioned it a few times, selling therapy, um, which is, uh, is and, and other more personalised medicines. Um, it's coming, it, if, if it, it's possibly already here, and does that present a, a big headache for manufacturing and, and, and processes and... How are they? How are we? How are we going to do this? It's here um, at an early stage, but it is actually here. There's an awful lot of discussion within the industry of how best to operate, where to build um, manufacturing facilities. What should the manufacturing facility be like? Are they traditional type manufacturing facilities? Most probably not. Um, insofar as do you build it? adjacent to hospitals or to clinics so that clinicians can provide 
um, or take biopsies, then on from there, uh, the um, materials can then be produced. But again, as I mentioned several times, small-scale, single-use uh, equipment, whole process, uh, the more that can be contained, the more that can be single-use, so there's no cross-contamination, everything disposable, taking out the environmental element of uh, single-use disposables, um, but uh, everything can be produced in one uh, area, dedicated rooms, clean rooms uh, for the process. Also, you're only looking at very small volumes of end product, almost single or double double-digit numbers of vials. So this can also be done in dedicated equipment, in Class A uh, cabinets. Uh, and so, in reality, I think the, the answer isn't known at the moment of where uh, these, how it should be done and where it's built, but there's a lot of focus on small-scale, close to um, end-user, uh, and or close to a very good distribution system and uh, work from there. So a lot of development still to be done in it. This is this is a world away from what we've been describing as manufacturing and one-stop shops and, and scale and... Personalised medicine's at one end. I think, you know, if you look at, um, at uh, things like antibiotics, uh, they're at completely the other end. Right. Very large scale, uh, stainless steel, multi-use equipment, uh, turn the handle and get most efficient for that end. There's there's different requirements in the way of biologics uh, manufacture for different products. So we're going to end up with both, effectively. Absolutely. And, and you are. everything in between. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. Who's who's going to do that? That um, you, know, you talked about we don't know where they're going to build them yet. We kind of know what's going to be in them. and they're going We to be believe, we, the believe we know what's going to be in them. Right. You know, who knows? When, when, right. when, yeah, proof of concept. I mean, it is being proved at the moment. There are a number of companies actively working in the field, actively delivering products uh, in the uh, cell and gene therapy areas. So it is, it is known uh, and it's not the old traditional uh, manufacturing processes. So are we putting manufacturing back in the hands of the R&D community? Is, is that what's happening? Yeah. Or is it a, is it a, a melding of the, 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 the two communities where manufacturing behaves more like R&D and vice versa? I think it's a melding of the two communities at the moment. I really yeah. do. I can sort of see, you know, in the future, it will be like a dialys dialysis machine or something like that. Bespoke cell and gene therapy treatment. Yeah, I think, I think yes, I think you're right, yes. So is, is back to my question, is, is, is this going to come from Big Pharma, that they're going to do it and they're going to rule it, or is it going to come from the CDMOs? More, more chances of it coming from CDMO. Pharma will definitely help fund some of those yes. research, but I think the, the CDMOs are taking the lead in terms of developing the technologies. Haven't CDMOs traditionally been, we talked about it earlier, they've been reactive and, and being, they rest deliver what pharma wants and it, it's a one-stop shop, hey, you'll have that. Doesn't this require them to have a different mindset and say, actually, we're going to start doing things that you're going to want, maybe not today, but want tomorrow um, and preparing for that? Because that's not typically what they do, is it? It's not typically in their in their core business, but what you have to remember is that CDMOs are driven by uh, startups and by companies uh, who are the next generation. So right. CD, a number of CDMOs also need to consider uh, more flexibility. 
but with flexibility comes additional time and additional cost. So I think that's where you need to be. You know, there's a number of CDMOs out there which have a complete plug and play. And if it, if what you're talking to them about doesn't fit, then sorry, you've got to go to another CDMO, a far more flexible arrangement. But the CDMO work is driven by uh, you know, cell and gene therapy, by the researchers who uh, just want to talk through, is this possible? Can you get? Can you think of a solution to do it? And so, will will that drive more or different consolidation or different trans? Because we, we, you know, we, I'm coming back to the transactional focus. Of this because it's what we do. Is that going to impact on the the, the the transaction space? We've seen that the traditional deals that you talked about, Janssen, where CDMOs consolidating and farmer maybe selling off bits to them to to, to get greater efficiencies out of it. Um, it how how do we how do we see that evolving? Is it? I mean, one example. I mean, we're working with a company now that has developed a technology where they can scale up from the lab to commercial without the need for validation. So they come up and they are revalidation. Presumably, they have to validate it, but they don't yeah, have to. But they only need once. But right. for each scale up, they don't need revalidation. Normally, when you do something uh, GMPs in the lab and you want to scale up to clinical, there, there, the process is slightly different, so it needs revalidation. But the, this company has developed a technology so that scale up, uh, they use essentially the fundamentals of the uh, uh, of the scale up is the same, which negates the need for revalidation. But so these kinds of uh, new technologies and ways of working are being developed by companies. So I suspect we'll see more of that happening. And again, CDMOs will be leading uh, in this space because you know they come up with a great idea and they 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 kind of see what the future holds and see where they could play a part in it. I'd agree. So, so here's here's one for you. Put your your uh, your or get your crystal ball out. Um, if if I were um, a, a private equity house and I was visionary um, and said I'm going to deploy several millions, I don't know what the number is, and I'm going to give it to you and say, go and, and, and put in place the, the CDMO of the future that's going to deliver cell and gene therapies for people. What, what, would, what would you do? What would you build? Would it be next to hospital, um, localised facilities, territorially focused? Um, I'll, I'll make a comment because we, we've, we've focused on that, but actually people have been shipping short life cycle, short lifespan entities around the world for decades. I... Uh, in the past worked at Amersham, which produced radionuclides, and they had to be shipped to their point of use within 24 hours, otherwise they were no good. So the, the, the capabilities existed for for long, maybe just wasn't scalable. I mean, so, yeah, what what would you put in place? From my, from my perspective, I agree with the distribution system. There are networks out there that work very, very well, and, and I have experience of it from a gene therapy perspective uh, very recently. If you're looking at um, cell and gene therapy, I would do, do modular build uh, of clean suites, which, could, which would be flexible enough to be able to take small-scale end-to-end uh, from, for the manufacturing side from... Um, fermentation through to viling at the end 
if it's small volume numbers of vials or otherwise have that somewhere within the facility where it can be used on a on a regular basis but i would have a scalable facility that you could uh, build out if however you're looking at uh if you want to look at single product large volume that's going to meet the um need as a raw material supply or something like that you know an excipient or something then I would do it a completely different way. I would then do it as a dedicated large-scale fermentation, purification uh, units, not scalable out, but scalable up. Right, so there's, there's scope for uh, all, all types and all sorts. Yes, mo- most people these days, or sorry, a lot of people are focusing on the uh, modular scale-out approach as opposed to the scale-up Right. And just, just let's not forget about small molecules. They're not going to go away. They're still the, the, the dominant um, entity in, in, in therapies. So is that going to change or we're we going to see small molecule manufacture the, the, the same as we've always seen it? The paracetamols of the world will always be required. Mm-hmm. And as more, more of these pills become generic, the, the cost of manufacturing of these would come down. And this is where I think when I, what I mentioned continuous... Uh, instead of batch uh, processes, uh, continuous manufacturing processes will help uh, reduce the cost of making these mass drugs. Uh, but of course, where drugs are required in smaller quantities, batches will always be still more practical, I think, because uh, many of the drugs these days are high potent, so you don't need a lot of it. Uh, but uh, So from that point of view, it's not all about making large volumes of drugs. It's all about how to make it cost-effectively. Janssen Jacob, Steve Garland, thank you. As ever, if you want to learn more about this podcast and other podcasts from Pharma Ventures, head over to www.pharmaventures.com slash podcasts. And for any other Pharma Ventures services, please go to www.pharmaventures.com. Thank you. Pharma Ventures, the deal experts.